uh, invite you to take your copy of God's Word. I hope you have it and open it to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is the second Gospel appearing in our New Testaments, although it was probably the first Gospel that was written uh, in its day. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, one of the, the black chair Bibles, you'll find uh, the Gospel of Mark beginning on page 785. Uh, prayerfully, uh, your copy of God's Word in Mark, if you're using a physical Bible with pages, will be well-worn by the end of this year. We're going to spend a good bit of time in Mark uh, throughout the course of 2023. Uh, I've not ever preached all the way through one of the Gospels, and so I am looking forward to it myself. And even in my study this week in Mark, found myself uh, uh, just getting excited already. So find your way in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1. This morning we'll be in verses 1 through 8. As you're finding your way to uh, Mark chapter 1, I thought it would be helpful to give a little bit of background about the gospel of Mark as we come to it to kind of understand uh, the world in which it was written and, and that we might be able to best read Mark and study it throughout the course of the year. Uh, early tradition has uh, John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the ministry partner, missionary partner to uh, the apostle Paul as the author of this gospel. Uh, Papias, who was a bishop in the early church who died sometime around the year 130 AD, so something like a second or maybe just a third generation Christian, Papias noted that Mark was Peter's interpreter and faithfully recorded all that Peter preached and taught about Jesus. So in one sense, we could say that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel as told through Mark. Very likely, Mark wrote this gospel, this story, a biography of Jesus' life, sometime in the mid-50s A.D., so uh, maybe about 20 years or so after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. As we said uh, earlier, it's the first of the four biblical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are commonly called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning from the same perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, all sort of follow the life of Jesus in more or less the same way. Matthew and Luke add a little bit more than Mark does, and it seems pretty clear that Matthew and Luke even used Mark as source material for writing their biographies of Jesus as well. Like in their research and writing, they used Mark's gospel uh, to supplement their own writing. John's gospel is entirely different, although he still follows the life of Jesus. He's not saying anything different about Jesus, but he definitely says it in a very different way than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Now, ancient biographies, uh, stories of people's lives over 2,000 years ago or more, are different from how we think about biographies today. Uh, Biographies in the ancient world were less about the facts of a person's life, just presenting the things that happened, and often were intended to lead their readers to make moral judgments about the subject of that biography and to come to specific conclusions about the people that they were writing about. And so Mark has an agenda when he is writing his gospel. He's, he's not just telling us the facts about Jesus' life. He's also leading us to a very specific conclusion about who Jesus is. All along the way, Mark is presenting evidence in this gospel, in this biography of Jesus, and he's constructing a case for his reader, for us even today, to believe a very specific claim about who Jesus is, a claim that we will uh, uh, encounter head on in in Mark chapter 1 this morning. From the mid-70s until the late 90s, there was one man whose name and face dominated the world boxing scene. 
Don King. Some of you, the, the face already just right pops into your head, right? Uh, uh, he, he would show up. Don King was a famous boxing promoter. There were boxers that dominated the scene too, but, but Don King had, had a way of, of uh, sucking in all of the attention to himself. When, when Don King showed up, uh, dressed snazzy as he always often was, with uh, usually gold chains on his neck and gold rings on his fingers and his hair coiffed just so, or maybe just intentionally crazy. I, uh, I couldn't ever figure out if he did his hair that way on purpose or not. But wherever Don King showed up, you knew that right behind him was going to be one of the greatest boxers that the world had ever seen. In the mid-70s, Don King promoted fights for Muhammad Ali. Then in the 80s, all the way through the late 90s, he promoted fights for the great Mike Tyson, Iron Mike Tyson. Everywhere Don King showed up, you knew some big bad boxer was coming right behind him. As we open to Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1, we see another promoter of sorts who gathers a lot of attention, but who's not so selfish with it as Don King was. As we open Mark's gospel chapter 1, we are introduced to maybe the promoter of all promoters, the, the preparer of all important people to come into the world, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. I don't like to call him John the Baptist because he wasn't Baptist the way that we're Baptist. He baptized people, John the Baptizer. And he comes not promoting Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson. He comes preparing the way for, gathering attention, and not for himself, but for the one who comes behind him, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As we open uh, this study of Mark in Mark 1, verses 1 through 8, Mark will tell us very clearly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And, the, and he'll give us the first evidence to this reality, which is the arrival of John, the baptizer, the one who comes before the Messiah. Here's the main idea for us in the text this morning, Mark 1, 1 to 8, that the good news of Jesus begins with knowing for certain who he is. The good news of the gospel of Jesus begins with knowing for certain who he is. This morning, as we begin our study in Mark, I hope that we would come to understand the purpose of Mark's biography of Jesus by rightly interpreting every reason that this story about Jesus is good news. Because that's what Mark is going to give us. Lots of reasons that this is good news. I invite you where you are uh, and as you're comfortably able, stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Follow along, uh, read along in your copy of God's Word. Mark, the gospel writer, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. The good news of Jesus begins with knowing for certain who he is. 
As we come to Mark's Gospel, we, we look first at, at chapter 1, verse 1, which is kind of like a heading for the whole uh, biography of Jesus that follows. And in Mark 1, verse 1, we see the purpose of this Gospel, the purpose of this biography. The purpose of it is to reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is good news. In Mark 1, verse 1, we get the author of this biography's meaning, his aim, his, his purpose for writing, what he wants for us to get out of it at the end of it. It's important that we begin by understanding that we, as readers of Mark's gospel, even 2,000 years after it was first written, that we are not the ones who get to decide what Mark is trying to say. This is totally contrary, though, to our postmodern world where truth and authority to interpret realities are said to belong to the individual. You get to determine what's true. You get to determine what is reality. You get to determine the meaning of any particular text or book or political speech or uh, any other thing in the world. The authority to interpret lies in you. That is not true when it comes to Scripture. The authority does not lie in us. The authority lies in the one who wrote it first, intending to communicate something to us. Now, my time as an English major in college, we often interacted with books that we were reading from a reader response perspective. Often questions were asked like, what do you get from what do you get from this text? What do you get from this book from the professor to the students? How do your experiences shape the meaning of Moby Dick or Shakespeare? And it's this approach that pe- in this approach that people came up with all kinds of ideas about what Moby Dick or Shakespeare had to say about all sorts of things like capitalist econom- uh, economics and the moral implications of the whaling industry for a post-Cold War civilization. Because, of course, that's what Moby Dick is about. Right? Mark is not, listen, Mark is not writing this biography of Jesus in a context or to an audience that he hopes will make up their own meaning about this biography of Jesus. He's not writing this down so that people can read it and then saying, do whatever you want with it. Not at all, not in the least, not even close. Mark is writing this biography of Jesus' life in order to get his reader 2,000 years ago and today, whoever is reading it, uh, to a very specific conclusion. Mark is telling us the end result, the final conclusion of his gospel in the very first verse. That conclusion, the the definitive end of Mark's gospel is to know the identity of the man that he is presenting to us, Jesus, and that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. Above all else, that is what Mark wants for us to know. And let me just say it it, this way. If you're reading Mark's Gospel and you come away from Mark's Gospel thinking that Jesus is anything other than the Christ or the Son of God, you have not read Mark's Gospel. At least not on Mark's terms. Mark tells us this is the beginning of the Gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus. Christ, the Son of God. The first thing that Mark tells us about who this Jesus is the first conclusion that we should make is that Jesus is the Christ. This is the first claim and aim of John Mark, the Gospel writer, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Those two words, Christ and Messiah, are words that mean anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew word from the Old Testament. Christ is the Greek word from the New Testament. But they mean essentially the same thing, anointed one. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, most of the time, uh, Messiah is a title or a description that is used for kings, for people in royalty. 
But beginning with David, the King David, all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we begin to see a growing anticipation of a king, of an anointed one, of a Messiah who will not just reign for a little while, but who will reign forever, who will be as a son to God, who will bring peace to God's people, who will restore God's people from exile and suffering, and who will himself reign in justice after the Jews returned to Israel following 70 years in exile in Babylon, anticipation of this root of David, this anointed one that was coming at some time after David, this Messiah who was on his way, anticipation for him began to grow so that by the last hundred years or so before Jesus was born, messianic hopes were at a fever pitch in Judea. Mark, as he begins his gospel, tells us what we are to conclude about this Jesus that he is this promised Messiah, that he is the descendant of David, the rightful heir to the throne of God's people, that he is the one who comes to establish justice, to reign in righteousness forever, and to deliver God's people. Now, to be sure, the idea of a king greater than David had come to mean for many Jews that a political ruler was coming to kick the Romans out of Judea and restore Israel to global political power. They were not, for the most part, necessarily expecting a Galilean teacher from the backwoods of Nazareth who would do powerful signs of healing, exorcism, control, the na- control over the natural world, nor did they expect that this Christ would die the humiliating exe- at, the, at the humiliating executioner's tool of crucifixion. But that is precisely who Mark will show us that Jesus is, and the kind of Christ that he is, the Messiah that he is. And that this unlikely candidate for king is, in fact, the one that God's people have been waiting for forever. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not his last name, but his title, anointed one of God. And Mark tells us something more. We're not just to conclude that Jesus is the Christ by the end of this gospel, but we're also to conclude that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this is a bit of an odd term. Son of God was regularly used for kings and rulers in the Old Testament as, as well as, as Christ. And even the people of Israel as a nation itself called God's son. And because these were those who had received authority from God in order to govern over the people or whose relationship to God had some sort of spiritual, special characteristic. But when Mark claims that Jesus is the son of God and that his biography is the good news of that reality... Mark is pulling, in some sense, from that Old Testament context to say, Jesus has, as Son of God, authority vested in Him by God. The Son has all of the authority that the Father gives to Him. But Mark also means more than that. He means, uh, reading the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, we find that the term Son of God has come to mean in the first century, and at least to the Gospel writers and the first Christians, Something more like, not not just one who comes with all the power of God or the authority of God, but Son of God has come to mean something more like God Himself. It would be one thing for Mark to have said that Jesus was a man of God, a godly man. We know of godly people, people who live in a, a godly way, an upright way. Jesus is all that, to be sure. And at the same time, He's so much more than that. He's not just a man of God, He's the Son of God. He's not just a person who lives by godly principles. Scripture tells us He is God with us, among us, as one of us, and yet at the same time totally different from us. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. 
The Nicene Creed, an early formulation from about the 300s AD, early 300s AD, a formulation of, of the most basic Christian beliefs, says that Jesus, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is uh, of the same essence as the Father, that He is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, subsisting of the same nature as the Father, Son of God. Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah, this Christ, this King, is more than just a mere man. He is God in human flesh. And that is, why, uh, that is what I am writing to convince you of, Mark is saying, from the outset. The purpose of Mark's Gospel is to show us that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and that that is very good news. So my exhortation to you this morning as we begin this study of Mark's Gospel is this, to hear what Mark is saying throughout the course of the whole Gospel. Hear what he is saying and listen to his message. Hear him and listen to him. Now if you ask my wife Nikki, she will tell you and attest that I am a terrible listener. We have lots of conversations, and I hear everything that she says, but I probably don't listen to all of it in the sense that it's, it's going in one ear and out the other and doesn't take a pit stop anywhere on the space in between. I crack up. There's an a, a insurance company that's running commercials now that they do like instant replay on just life situations, and you'll see a husband and a wife arguing over you know, if, uh, who was supposed to pack the camp stove for the camping trip, and it's not there, and the wife says, no, you told me you were going to pack it, and I, when I asked you to, and he's going, no, we never had that conversation, and she throws a red flag and says, let's see the replay, and they watch the replay, and you see his face fall Because he heard what she said, but he failed to listen. We need to hear what Mark is saying. Hear what he's saying. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that is good news. You need to hear that today. But you also need to do more than just hear it. You need to listen to it. We need to take this truth and tuck it away in the core of our hearts. We need to consider it. We need to know it. We need to know what this truth requires of us. And then we need to be obedient to it. Don't just hear Mark. Listen to him. He's told us what his message is. Listen to it. John gives us in verse 1 of his gospel the purpose of his gospel. And then he jumps right away into the action. Mark's gospel reads a lot like a comic book. I mean, it's just frame after frame of action. And he moves quickly. Now, Matthew and Luke begin their gospels with the birth of Jesus. Mark skips right over that and gets to the good stuff. He gets straight to, he goes from the purpose to the preparer, who is John the baptizer. I'll I'll most commonly call him John the Baptizer because he wasn't necessarily a Baptist in the way that we're Baptists in terms of the the, uh, theological convictions we have as Baptists, although I like to think he probably would have agreed with us. Nevertheless, he's, he's more a Baptizer than he is a Baptist. What do we learn about John the Baptizer? Well, we learn first, as Mark tells us, that he was prophesied. It was told that he was coming, that a preparer was on his way. This is the way that Mark introduces John as the one prophesied in Isaiah and also Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is the source, the citation for Mark chapter 1 verse 2. Mark tells us that this citation in verses 2 and 3 comes from Isaiah, but he's making a broader claim to the whole of the the prophets in the Old Testament. Verse 2 is from Malachi 3.1. Verse 3 is from Isaiah 40 verse 3. Interestingly, in both Old Testament prophets, where these words come up, 
or these de- declarations come up. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In both of these Old Testament prophecies, when God speaks through his prophet saying that a proclaimer is coming, a preparer is on the way, the one who comes behind the preparer is God himself in both instances. Every expectation was that when this preparer comes, that he comes announcing God himself. He doesn't come announcing a a new good teacher. He doesn't come announcing a, a, a new religious movement. He doesn't come announcing a better way to live. He comes announcing God himself. And more than that, we learn about where John prefers to minister and and how he prefers to dress himself. His location and his outfit are biblically significant. We find that John appears in the wilderness, as Mark tells us. His attire, first of all, let me go to his attire first and then his place. His attire is camel's hair and a leather belt. And his camel's hair and a leather belt is not just a fashion statement. When we read that, we go like, man, this dude was something else. But he's wearing the same sort of clothing that the great prophet Elijah wore and was described as as wearing in 2 Kings chapter 5. John knows what he's doing. He's fashioning himself as one to be listened to. He finds his ministry location out in the wilderness, away from the city of Jerusalem, in order to identify his movement, his ministry, what he's preparing the people for, with the place where God met with his people as he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and, and met and guided and cared for his people in the wilderness for 40 years, forming them to be a people for his own possession before taking them to the promised land. And so John comes looking like a prophet in the place where God intentionally prepared his people in the past, And now he comes in the spirit of the prophets to the place of of the people's first formation to proclaim the message that the Lord is on his way, that God is just behind him. John was prophesied by the Old Testament, anticipated by Old Testament prophets and prophecies. And we find that he prepared the way through a baptism of repentance. This is how John makes makes people ready for Jesus' arrival. The way that John prepared... The, the path is, is significant. He didn't merely announce that Jesus was coming, that the Christ was on the way, but he devoted himself to getting the people ready. So he's not just a herald, he's also one that's working with the people to, to help them to be prepared for Christ's arrival. Out in the wilderness, away from the temple in Jerusalem, John proclaimed that forgiveness of sins doesn't come through ritualistic sacrifice like it happens often in the temple, but through heartfelt repentance of sin. And John's not saying that the sacrifices in the temple don't matter, but what he's saying is that it is a heart of repentance that gives the sacrifices in the temple any significance whatsoever. In fact, we could read through the minor prophets, the 12 smaller prophets in the Old Testament, and the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well, and see time and again God excoriating his people for performing sacrifices in the temple, thinking that That just by doing the sacrifice, their sins would be forgiven. Having no heart of repentance or understanding of their sin and separation from God whatsoever, God tells His people regularly, your your sacrifices are an abomination to me. Because you're keeping all the rules, but you have no desire to be right with me. You have no desire to turn from your sin. And so John is out in the wilderness saying essentially the same thing. He's not encouraging people to slaughter animals. He's He's encouraging people to be immersed in the river. This is a weird dude. 
Mark tells us that John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I wonder if that phrase caught your attention as you were reading it. It caught mine. I think a better way maybe to say that, or a more clear way of saying that, is that John came proclaiming a baptism that signifies, that symbolizes uh, repentance of sin and a plea to God for forgiveness. In any case, it isn't baptism in water that brings forgiveness, but a repentant heart before God demonstrated in baptism. Now, it's interesting to note that baptism, the way that John was practicing it in the River Jordan, was usually only practiced, um, practiced among Jews by those who were converting from Gentile pagan religions to Judaism. And in that conversion, they would go down to a river and immerse themselves in, in sort of a, a ritualistic washing, if you will, to be able to present themselves as a person ready to serve the Lord and Him only. So what is John doing here? Well, he's telling the people of Israel, because remember, it's the people of Judea and everyone from Jerusalem. These aren't Gentiles coming to John. These are Jews coming to John. John is saying to the people of Israel that their birth into the people of Israel counts for nothing when it comes to forgiveness of sins. He's saying your ethnic heritage affords you no special privilege when it comes to forgiveness, but that everything that is necessary for a Gentile convert is necessary for an Israelite too. The way to receive forgiveness is not to be born an Israelite, but to confess your sin to God and repent. Confession of sin, repentance, faithful worship of God, only that is the way to right relationship with Him. So John is prophesied by the Old Testament. And he comes preparing the way by proclaiming a a message, the Christ is coming, and preparing the people to receive Him. And all along the way, John is pointing to one who is greater than him. Here we see that John was fully aware of what his role would be in life. Not to be the guy, but to point to the guy. As we saw in the early chapters of Luke's gospel uh, during our Advent season in, in Christmas, even John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, knew that this would be John's primary service to God. That he would be the one crying in the wilderness, preparing the people for the Lord's arrival. The way that John says it here is, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John knows he's not the dude. He's just come to point everybody to the one who is. John's knowledge of who Jesus is as the Christ, as the Son of God, helps him to know all the better who he is. The sinless, divine nature of Jesus the Christ John's own relative, too, because his mother and, and, and Jesus' mother were, were related. But his knowledge of who Jesus is, his sinless uh, reality, his, his divine nature reveals to John in, in, in greatest clarity his own unholiness and even his unworthiness to be in the presence of the one that he is announcing. The one who's coming behind me, I'm not even worthy to take the place of lowest servant in his house to stoop down and untie his sandals. That's how great he is. Like Isaiah, the prophet who lamented the depth of his own sin when God appeared to him in a vision. Like John the Apostle who fell down as though dead when he saw a vision of the risen and glorified Christ in writing Revelation. So also John the Baptizer knows that Jesus, the God of the universe, veiled in flesh, is worthy of all worship and praise and humility when he comes. John himself says in John the Apostle's Gospel, it's too many Johns, you got John the Baptizer, John the Apostle, not the same person, but in John's 
uh, John the Apostle's Gospel, he records that John the Baptizer said in John 3, verse 30, about Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. Now that He's on the scene, He must have all of the attention, and I must get none of it. My whole life, my whole purpose has been about making Him greater, showing Him for who He is. My job is just to point to Him. And now that He's here, you can forget the signpost and see Him for yourself. Jesus is greater in very nature and existence than John the Baptizer, His own cousin. And John the Baptizer reveals that Jesus is greater in what He actually does. He's greater in existence, and He's greater in job execution. That's a really poor way of saying it. But He's better in what He does John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John baptizes, he immerses people in the water of the Jordan River. That is, he washes the outside of the person to paint a picture of the individual's heartfelt intention to be made clean by God. But this baptism in the Jordan is nothing compared to what Jesus will do. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, John says. Now, baptism with the Holy Spirit most likely does not mean that Jesus will do something in the life of the believer as a secondary experience in salvation following baptism in water. As a couple other well-meaning Christian groups would, would imply that this would happen. Rather, when John says, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, taking just the plain meaning of Mark's gospel here, baptism with the Holy Spirit implies spiritual cleansing from sin that a washing with water can never bring about. I'll wash the outside of you with water to to symbolize or to demonstrate an internal commitment on on your part to repent of sin and to ask God for forgiveness. But when the Messiah comes, the one who behind me is greater than me, when He comes, He will actually cleanse you from sin. Not just with water, not just through ritual washing, but real spiritual cleansing from the inside out. God Himself says through the prophet Ezekiel that in the day of the Lord's coming, He says... Uh, This is Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. John comes baptizing with water. And he says, Jesus will come baptizing with the Holy Spirit. So what is it that Jesus is going to do? What is this baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, as God the Son, Jesus is going to send God the Spirit to live in the hearts of everyone who repents of sin and believes in the Son for salvation. And the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, will cleanse believers from the inside out. Not merely a, a water washing by, uh, administered by another person, but a God-completed spiritual washing. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is what takes place every time someone genuinely turns from sin, trusts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died for sins and was raised again. To these who believe Jesus this way, to these who believe, who not just hear, but listen to, and respond the right way to Mark's gospel message, God sends the person of His Holy Spirit to live in their hearts, to wash away the guilt of sin, and to empower them to live holy lives. Mark in his gospel gives us the purpose 
I'm writing to tell you about the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, Son of God. We need to hear Mark's message. We need to listen to it. And then he shows us the preparer, John the baptizer, who is prophesied in the Old Testament, who is preparing the people and who points to Jesus, the one who is greater. Seeing this first preparer, this proclaimer, this one who goes before the Messiah. Friends, this morning, we, not, we, we need not to just hear Mark's message and listen to it. We also need to hear John's message, John the baptizer's message, and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Mark has a message in his gospel, and the message in his gospel is directly supported by the message that was proclaimed by John the baptizer. Jesus is the one who comes to make you clean. The good news of John's message, John the baptizer's message, is still very good news today, friends. Not only that forgiveness of sins is available, but that God has come in the person of his son, as he promised, to bring us back to him. And this he does, not by simply snapping his fingers and doing away with sin, but this he does by absorbing in himself the penalty for our sin, which is death. Jesus, as we go through Mark's gospel, we will find near the end of it, Jesus is uh, executed on a cross for sins he never committed. And we are told, like in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21, that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The good news of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ who comes to redeem a people for himself by dying for them, by being raised again, and by by being the mediator of a better covenant relationship with God, a covenant of grace and mercy to all who turn from sin and trust in him is still good news today. So hear Mark's message, listen to it, and hear John's message that Jesus is greater. And he comes with a greater washing, not just something ritualistic washing with water, but he comes to cleanse you with the Holy Spirit of God. Friend, if you've never come to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's my invitation to you this morning. That's John's invitation, that's Mark's invitation, and all through, as we go through the, the Gospel of Mark, that's going to be the regular invitation. Come to know Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life for sins and was raised again. Hear John's message. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then, second point of application. Because some of us have already made, we've come to that conclusion. We've heard that message. We've responded to it in faith. Well, what does Mark 1, 1 to 8 have to do for those of us who are already following Jesus? Well, believing that Jesus is the Christ, let us who know him and this wonderful truth embrace the joy of pointing others to him. And we may envision John the baptizer as a bit of a wild man. Eccentric, aloof, out there in the wilderness. He dresses weird. He eats strange food. He says really bold things. But I see in John the baptizer a great joy that comes from his conviction that his life's purpose has come to fruition. He he has lived his life not only preparing people for for the Lord to come, but now Jesus is right there. He, He knows him and he knows that he's coming and he is delighted to call people to faith and repentance. John is not disappointed or hesitant to point people to Jesus. It is his life's purpose. And he is enthusiastically exalting Jesus because all that he knows of who Jesus is. So friend, if you've come to know this Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, who died for sins, was raised again, who gives grace and forgiveness and a right relationship with God to everyone who believes in Him, if you know the reality of being washed with the Holy Spirit, being made holy and righteous to stand before God with a clear conscience, 
Rejoice in that and joyfully point others to him. What greater news is there? What greater purpose is there in life than to point people to the one who can make them right with God? The good news of Jesus begins with knowing for certain who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and John the baptizer came proclaiming that message, preparing a people to receive it. Mark has declared to us in the first paragraph or so of his biography of Jesus' life this reality, who Jesus is and our proper response to him. So now two questions are before us. First, do you know Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, having received him as your Savior through repentance of sin and faith in him? That's question number one. Have you heard the message of Mark? Are you listening to what John the baptizer was saying? Have you not, not, not just heard the message, but listened to it? received it, believed it? Had your life changed by he who died and was raised again? And the second question, if you have, if you do know this Jesus, are you now today joyfully ready to point others to him? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is the good news that the one who was intended and promised to save his people has come. Believe him. In a moment, we're going to believe we're going to sing a song of response this morning. And I invite you during that time, respond in your heart in obedience to God in whatever way he's calling you. If you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, you can do that in your own heart, in your own way, confessing your sin to God, your need for a Savior, and recognizing that Jesus is that Savior, inviting him, asking him, submitting to him as Lord, that he might bring you forgiveness of your sins and make you right with God. If you need help in that way, I'll be standing here at the front as we're responding to worship. Come and grab me. Let's, let's talk together about how you can know for certain that Jesus is your Savior. Maybe today you just need to, to respond in joyful worship because of who Christ is and what He has done and, and as a way of preparing your, yourself and your heart to leave this place, joyfully pointing others to Him. However God is calling you to respond this morning, as we respond in song, uh, I, I invite, I, I encourage you, Uh, respond to God in faithful obedience this morning. Let's pray.